You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. So we are Revelation 20, the last five or six verses of that chapter, and this is the subject of the great white throne judgment. This is really the last chapter that deals with judgment or anything like that in any sort. The next two chapters are actually dealing with the blessing of the eternal state and the new era, and it's a very different thing altogether. But what I'm going to do is just quickly read over the first 10 verses of Revelation chapter 20 so we have the context as we move through. But this is by way of recap because we have done this. So let's just start in Revelation 20 verse 1. John says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. And after these things, he must be released for a short time. I'm simply going to recap. This was the issue that we called the binding of Satan and his confinement in this place called the abyss that for all intents and purposes seems to be like a maximum security wing that the Lord has for these type of things. The reason he was bound was so that he could not deceive the nations during the thousand-year kingdom reign of Christ, and that will have such a drastic effect on the world, even though people will still have their sin natures. Without the deceptive influence of Satan, things will be very, very different. Verse 4, Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. And this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. And over these the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him a thousand years. So we see here, obviously we're dealing with this unusual period, the very final period of the tribulation of this end time that precedes the coming of the kingdom. And we talked about this last time we were in this study. The two resurrections are mentioned here. And the first resurrection is the resurrection unto life. This is for all believers who have died in the Lord up until that time. And then the second resurrection is the one unto contempt, as it's called, as Jesus called it. And this is unbelievers, basically. So all will be resurrected at this time but with two different destinations. And these are why we're going to deal with some of these hard topics this morning. We did note how these two resurrections are separated by a period of time. It says after the thousand years. So the idea is, as we've studied in Revelation 19 and 18, the final birth pangs that bring in this period of the kingdom. Christ appears in the heavenlies. He comes down. He resets the earth for his thousand-year kingdom. And it's a time of peace, prosperity, and blessing across the world as he is ruling on the earth. But then at the end, Satan is released for this little period, and we have his final, he deals with him in the final sense, and we have this judgment and resurrection here. We talked in scripture. We know of two births, two deaths, and two resurrections. Do you remember this? We, we dealt with this last time. I'll recap it quickly because it's so important as we move forward. Everyone is physically born once. These are the two births. This is how scripture presents it. Every single person is physically born once. The second birth is what's called the spiritual birth. This is where the phraseology to be born again comes from, from the, from the Gospel of John, and the, the evangelical church is always pushed. This is when you confess your sins and you accept Jesus for who he is. They are the two births. 
The scripture also speaks of two deaths. The first death is just like the first birth. It's the physical, it's your physical death. Everyone will go through that at some point. The second death is what we're dealing with here, actually, in Revelation chapter 20. This is that time that occurs at the end of the millennium. It is the final judgment for unbelievers. It's called the second death. And we read, didn't we? We just read it in that text there. Those who are born again, those who are believers, do not need to fear the second death. That's the idea. It says the second death has no power over them. The judgment of God is not something that they need to concern themselves with or worry. This is the whole foundational point of the gospel. The judgment of God has already been poured out on a human, a man, the God-man, actually, Jesus Christ. That's the whole point of it. And by placing yourself and your faith in him, this no longer concerns you. It has no power over you. And the old expression, if you are born twice, you only die once. That's the idea. You understand that? If you've, if you've had the second birth, the spiritual rebirth, the second death, it's not a thing that you will be a part of. And it's vital everyone understands this. I emphasized this last time. Probably the most important thing I would say that you get from the book of Revelation is not to be part of the second death. And in order to avoid that, you must make sure you are born again. This is why Jesus, in the very early days of his ministry, his entire ministry, his message was always like John 3.3, 3, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born again. Jesus emphasizes that again and again throughout the Gospels. Let's carry on. Verse 7. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. He will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth, surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. We studied the final release of Satan last time. We won't go into it huge amounts of detail. This will be accomplished after the millennium. The reason for this was that Paul says... When death is finally defeated, death is the last enemy. The connection between Satan and death is very much there. He is the cause of it, the instigator. Sin is what caused it, but Satan is behind it. When that is defeated, the kingdom will then be handed back to the Father. And then you move into this era of history called the eternal state that's very hard to really contemplate. But that era, the current era of, of history, will be complete at that moment. So this is what happens. Now let's go into chapter 11. This is the new part. All of that was way of recap hopefully i know that's huge amounts of data and information to recap in such a short period of time you can go back and listen to the studies if you want to go into it in more depth let's have a look at verse 11 and 12 then please so he says john says then i saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whom from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them and i saw the dead the great and the small standing before the throne and books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. So here we see now the change of era from the time of the kingdom into what we call the age of eternity, the eternal state. This is really the transitional thing. This is the last event that has to happen before we move into that period. And, and I have to admit, I'm sure you'll all agree, it's very difficult to try and explain really what we're reading here. 
because it's dealing with something that's outside of our knowledge base and comprehension. We literally have the revelation of God, and we can trust that, obviously, but to try and explain it is still dealing with things that are outside of my experiential knowledge, then we must be guided by the scripture, but we can try and bring some clarity to a degree here. There is an aura of mystery surrounding this period. That's why I believe we actually only get two chapters. If you think of all the chapters in the Bible that we have, only two chapters really deal with this period because it's kind of beyond our comprehension in some ways. John is taken beyond the kingdom age. And the first thing that really jumps out of me as I think about that, it says, as the earth and the physical creation is removed, what is it that lies behind everything? What does he see? A throne. And that's telling, I think, for all of us. What lies behind it all is a throne, a great white throne. The throne is the furniture of a king. There is a king behind everything. And also, it's the furniture of a judge too in the ancient world. A king and a judge was often combined. It is in this case here. This is a scene of foreboding that we have here. Earlier in the book, we saw when the saints entered the throne room of God, they sing and they praise, and it's a time of joy for them. But that's not what we're dealing with here. This is a different thing. This is one of foreboding. This is not for believers. This is the judgment of unbelievers, and every word kind of screams, builds the tension. The great throne. It's not just a throne. This is the great throne. This is where the infinite sits and where the finite will stand before him in this manner. The white throne. It's the unveiled, undimmed blaze of his glory that is said to light eternity. No more sun, no more physical creation, no more stars giving light. It's the Lord who is the light. It's the divine blaze of his holiness and his purity and his justice that is emanating from this throne. And throne indicates that his majesty is unlimited. There are no other thrones challenging his throne here, no other names, no other gods, no other things that we have on this earth to challenge that. He is the one that holds the utter right and authority over all creation to do with it as he wishes. These are the, some of the things that we should think as we see this scene behind the throne. It says, him who sat upon it. Now, it's unnamed here, but we happen to know that this is referring to Jesus Christ here. John 5:22. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honour the Son even as they honour the Father. He who does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. And truly I say to you, he who hears my word, believes in him who sent me, has eternal life, and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. And what we're reading in Revelation 20 is really the actual fulfilment of these last words there of John 5, we are witnessing what happens to those who don't believe in Jesus Christ. That's the idea here, the fate of those who don't believe in his word and they remain under judgment. And this is the direction that history has been heading. It's been progressing towards this event. And we've been told this for a long time. Like it still, it should impact us hugely and it does, but we've, we've known this is where history is heading for a long time. God has had people preaching about it for a long time. Go right back to the book of Acts, first century church, Acts 17, verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Why? Why is he so keen on having people repent? It's because of this issue of the second death here. Because he goes on in verse 31 of Acts 17. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. 
This is why the resurrection is so key too. Not only is it the way that he defeated death, but it's also the proof that he has the right to judge because he has power over death and life. This is the person on the great white throne that sits behind everything we have in the universe. Acts chapter 10, verse 42. The early church used to preach this a lot. We don't preach this too much these days. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. You see, this is central to the themes of the gospel that we have here. We cannot ignore it. It was part of the preaching of the early church. Of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Now, one thing I also want you to notice, although the prophets and the apostles taught and preached on this issue of the coming judgment by the Son, notice whenever they mention it, they always mention it in connection with the solution. As in, they want you to know it's coming and they want you to know how to avoid it. Always be forgiven, repent, confess. A way has been made for you to avoid this. The second death is not for you. Don't make sure that you're not involved in it, basically. That is the constant message, 2,000 years. That has been the message of the church. This is what we need to be preaching again, I believe. It's part of the gospel message. He then goes on, from whose, back in Revelation, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And this is, a, it's hard to imagine really what we're talking of here, but we see the confirmation that the purpose for this initial creation is complete. God didn't just create the world with no purpose. He, he had a course to run with it. He has his purposes in mind. And we had the purpose, and then we had the purpose for the kingdom age. And now he's moving into the eternal state age. The purpose of the creation is done. It's actually making way for the new creation that we'll read about in the very next chapter. The earth, this earth, was created for our habitation. And that means it was purposeful. Isaiah 45, verse 18. For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens... He is the God who formed the earth and made it, and he established it, and did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. That's a very nice statement of what scientists call the anthropic principle, that the physical cosmos is filled with constants that make life, that are just finely tuned, as they say, for life. It's a very clear statement of that in the Bible there. This was the purpose of God. It's all part of his plan. The judgment of unbelievers that we're reading about in Revelation 20 I find it interesting that he doesn't do that now on the physical creation that was created for man. He removes that and the judgment takes place in his realm, if we could say it like that. It's hard to understand really what we're talking about, but I think it adds to that sense of awesomeness and the kind of somber foreboding that we have with this picture here that heaven and earth are just fled away. The word fled away could be translated runaway. They're just told to go. This is the physical creation. We know that in Genesis it simply declares that God created the universe by the power of his created word. In the beginnings, God created the heavens and the earth, and then ten times throughout that chapter, he says, then God said, then God said, then God said. It's the power of the created word that does this. We also know that the physical cosmos is sustained by the power of God's word. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. And with that in mind... He can remove it in just the same way once its purpose is complete and this is what he seems to do here preparing us for the new heavens and the new earth now this is again like i said it's outside of our comprehension in many ways we take it because we know the word of god is true so in an instant the heaven and the earth are removed from the scene 
and all that remains are all the souls of those men who find themselves in what we could call the celestial courtroom. They're standing in front of the judge of all the earth. Do you remember when Jesus said in Luke 21, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away because his words are eternal. The creation is not. He is separate from his creation. Therefore, it makes sense that what we're reading here. Now, he is there. He's seated on the throne. Remember, no more light from the stars, no more light from the sun. There's no light really except that which is coming from the throne himself, which we know is sufficient to actually light everything. This was the light before the sun was created. This is what is said to give the light in the new creation too. Again, very hard for us to imagine. But the point emphasised here is that there is really no escape. <laughs> Where can you go? Think of all those souls who have rejected Christ there, standing there. The dimensionality has changed. The physical cosmos is gone. The creation is gone. They are there before the great white throne, the eyes of the Lord, which we read in the beginning of Revelation, burning like fiery bronze, are now staring upon them. This is a serious time. There's no way to sugarcoat this. You get a sense for this scene. No wonder, really, the entire Bible is filled with God's messengers trying to make sure that people don't end up in this scene. Okay, it was not made for humans. This is the whole point of the gospel message in many ways, and sometimes we forget that in the comfort of the Western world, I believe. No one can hide. Well, actually, let me caveat that. There is one way to hide yourself from this judgment. Colossians 3. If you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's it. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. There is one way to hide yourself from this event, and that is to make sure that you are hidden in Jesus Christ. Again, that is the gospel. Again, that is why the early church always said, repent, judgment is coming, I've already made a way that you don't have to make sure it's part of it. That's it, this is the gospel. Let's look at verse 12. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. So here at this moment, all of these unbelievers from all human history standing before the throne, it must be an awesome scene in many ways. The great and the small, it says, all categories of men, as we would categorise them on earth. The rich, the powerful, the strong, the mighty, the kings and the leaders, those whom the earth has adored, those whom the earth has built statues, empires have been founded upon their stories, told through generations, countless exploits of the men that the world considers great. None of it matters. None of it matters at this point. They all appear here together, the great and the small, all of the evildoers, most of those who do their evil in secret on this world, who will never come to justice in light here, all of those who have just rejected Christ and put themselves in the place of Christ. The great white throne here is the great equaliser of mankind for all those who don't accept to hide themselves in Jesus Christ. They are standing before the throne, or it may read, standing before God. Euphemism there for the same thing. Now think of the contrast, I mentioned it briefly earlier, between the saved and the unsaved here in relation to this. For the saint, for the believer, for those who love Jesus Christ, the desire to stand in God's presence is held out as the greatest joy and privilege, 
the greatest desire, the thing that mankind seeks and pursues, to see God face to face. That's what we want, have wanted to do since we first believed. And it's held out as the ultimate blessing for us. We'll see it, Revelation 22. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him, and they will see his face. That's what we long for, to see his face. It's held out as being in his presence is the fullness expression of joy for the saved person. Paul says that now in this age we see dimly, but one day we will see face to face. On and on you'll find this for the Bible. Those of you who love Jesus, you'll know this feeling, this burning within you when you think, when you read, when you meditate on God, when you worship him. These are the things that make our hearts sore. But while we're living in this age, we're not going to meet him in that way yet. That is our glory and our future for, a, for another age. But we do want to worship in his presence still. All of our lives, though, are ordered towards anticipating that day. In all the struggles and the pains and the brokenness of this world, that is what is held out to us. One day, it's all going to be gone. Everything is going to fade away as we stand in front of the face of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's our, that's our glory. That's what we're looking for. Yet for unbelievers, it's a very different story. You see, while on this earth... Generally, they would avoid coming into the light of God's glory at all costs. The Bible says they reject it, they hide in the shadows, they keep to the darkness because they love the deeds of darkness. And you could think, well, that's the really evil people we're talking about. What about just the nice people who reject God? At this day, they may not have done some of the really evil things, but in their hearts and their minds, they've still rejected God's place in the universe and they put themselves in God's place. That is the same it's not the same, but that is also enough to convict them at this time. Their lives will be testimony to the fact that they expressed a desire to live independently of God. You cannot deny that. I know some great people who are not saved. I've spoken to them. But the fact of the matter is, at this stage, unless the Lord convicts them, they don't want God and they want to live their lives without God. At the very strip it to its core, that's what we're saying. At this moment, that earthly desire will be transformed into an eternal reality for them. You see, that is ultimately where it leads, which again highlights why you see so much emphasis on the preaching of the apostles to make sure that people are aware that is what's going to happen and how to avoid that happening to them. In this physical world, in this, in this era that we, we are all living in now, there is a way, there is sort of some measure, some ability that men have to hide. You could say that. We get away with a lot, don't we? People get away with a lot. People use the facilities of the earth, I could say, without attributing any glory to the owner. And you can get away with that in this age right now. Worse, actually, they use his stuff and they curse him for it too. That's a good definition of our age in many ways. And he allows that because of his grace, because right now he's saving people. The gospel's going out day by day. It's still time for people to avoid this fate. But there is a reason we see heaven and earth removed from this moment. This is it, really. All of that opportunity to hide and live. Things are different now. You're standing before God. That is it. Now, we could just personalise this for a moment. We've looked at those two desires in life. What is it that characterises our life? It's a question. The Bible says sometimes we need to examine ourselves in light of these things because we all know the busyness of life keeps our minds fairly occupied on the things of this world. It just does in many ways. It's not, not always bad things. It just That's just what happens. But at some point, we have to ask ourselves, do we seek that face of the Lord? Do we long to be in the presence of God? If you do, 
you probably will make sure that you're part of the first resurrection. If not, you'll probably coast through life. But the warning would then be one day, it is second death that awaits you. We seek his face, we seek his presence, we want to see his glory magnified, and we want to see that future where one day it says that he will again dwell with man. Or do we prefer the pursuits of this world? One of the things that we often do in this Western quasi-Christian world is we shape Christianity into our own therapeutic religious system. Provides us a measure of comfort and a little bit of the sacred to keep and satisfy that part of our being, but ultimately it's a religious system that still allows us to live in an independent way of God. See that all the time. I'd say half the church is, is that is what is happening. This is what we see. This chapter should really give us a warning to make sure that is not what we're doing. And I one devotion I read on this, one of the old Puritan writers, he says, how do you know if you're in danger of living like that? Ask yourself this question. If you removed what you consider to be your Christianity from your life right now, your church, whatever that may be, ask yourself, would it really have an impact on what you do next week, except for not going to church? Would your day-to-day -day be any different? Would your thought patterns be any different? Would your interests, your pursuits, your loves in this life be any different? And the way you answer that question will probably tell you which road you're on and where you need to be. And he says, don't let that go out of your mind until you've dealt with it. This scene should warn us against that. It says, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which are written in the books according to their deeds. So these books seem to be a record of deeds, good and bad, along with the book of life, which records those who are saved. Now, in this world, like I said, it appears that you can get away with sin. Millions upon millions of people walk this globe today, having committed all manner of evil against their fellow man. No one knows. They'll never be held to account There'll never be any justice for their victims. Multiply, probably way more than we could even imagine. However, this is where the justice of God comes in. These things have been recorded. Every word, every thought, every deed, every action at this time will be held before men. Matthew 12, I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it on the day of judgment. Ecclesiastes 12:14. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. There are records. No one gets away with anything. Everything will be brought to light. Now, that's a, that's a pretty fearful thought. Again, this is not for us. We are hidden with Christ. When we stand before God, he sees Jesus Christ. And it's a different event. It's not this period here that we're reading. It's completely different. But this is still the message that we find throughout the Bible to make sure that men know. At this day, when all these things are brought to light, none will be found innocent. Sin will be found. There will be no covering available for people. Another theme you might have picked up on through the Bible is often this imagery of clothing, white robes as our salvation, the garments of salvation, the white robes that Christ gives to us. That's our covering. That's our sin. That's what gets us through. It's the covering of our sin, rather. But at this time, although sin is found, there's no covering available. That time is done, that time is past. The age of grace in that respect is ended. Verse 13, and the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. The completeness of this judgment is here emphasized. It is a complete cleaning house, a clearing out of all unbelieving humanity, even extending to what it calls death and Hades. 
the place where all of those unsaved people have been until this time. It's emptied. Do you remember at the beginning of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 18, in that glorious picture of Jesus, the glorified Lord, the same one sitting on the great white throne, what does it say? 118, it says that he has the keys to death in Hades. He has power, authority, the keys, and now we're seeing him use them and he's emptying it. He's preparing the world for the next era where anything any that even reminds them of death, of sin, is done away with. So it has to be like this in that way. He's dealing with it now. It means the first death, that first death we talked about, which has been in operation really up until this moment here, it's coming to an end. No one's going to experience the first death anymore. All that it's giving way to now is the second death. And that's the final one. Again, the seriousness of this situation. The sea, most people say that this is really being used as a euphemism for this place called the abyss that we've read about in Revelation. It's the same word in Hebrew anyway. A lot of Jewish apocalyptic literature uses the sea as a euphemism for that place. We learned in, in the early chapters of Revelation in the pit, this is where those angels who rebelled were kept until this day. So it seems to be he's not just clearing out all of the, all of the humanity here, he's doing a full cleaning house of all of those who have rebelled because in the eternal state those things will no longer be. And the demons know this day is coming, we see this in the Gospels. Do you remember when Jesus met those people and he, with the whole herd of pigs and that, that whole episode? They cried out to Jesus, what business do we have with each other, son of God? Have you come to torment us before the time? What are they referring to there? They know their end before the time. They know, that they know the great white throne. They know who's on the throne and who the king is. And one day that will be their end. All the unbelieving and the rebellious are here appearing before this final great white throne judgment. And this is not so much a trial. This is really a sentencing at this point, as, as harsh as that may sound. This is it. Verse 14, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So this clean-up operation must be completely done. It is a removal of the old order. I'm going to wait for that to finish. It is a removal of the old order into the new creation. And it is really only by taking away all the effects of sin, death, Hades, the place of confinement, all of this is done. It's the similar analogy is kind of like if you, if you know someone who's suffering from cancer, when the, what the doctors will try and do is remove all of that cancer. And if any part of it is not removed, then you're not really healed. Chances are it will come back. This is the kind of analogy that we have here. Everything is being completely removed in preparation for the eternal state, for the time of blessing. That is why when we read, we'll read it next week in Revelation 21, he can make a promise like this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death, any mourning, any crying, any pain. First things have passed away. What's he referring to? First things. This old order, the first death, all of these things that we've been going through up until this point. This is the way. It's the second death that is left. It is final. Remember in verse 6 that we read, Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these the second death has no power. Again I emphasise, the second death was not for mankind. To avoid this fate, we make sure we're part of the first resurrection. How do we do that? Being very clear, we do that by being born again, having that second birth, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, confessing our sins, making sure that we have accepted him as Lord, making sure we acknowledge he is the one on the throne. Remember the promise to the church at Smyrna, Revelation chapter 2. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. 
This theme is not a small theme in Scripture. It comes up again and again and again. It's almost like Jesus takes it very seriously. This is the end. Know what's coming. What did Matthew, Jesus say? Matthew 25. He will say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. That's who the second death was prepared for, the devil and his angels. The fate was not for humanity, yet it is possible that you end up there if your life is not hid with Christ, if you reject the mercy of God. Now, this is very challenging. You know, in a sceptical environment, world that we live in, you can hear, you can hear atheists and sceptics bringing charges against God. Something within our nature recoils at the thought of something like this, something of judgment. Don't get me wrong, I'm very much aware of that. We scramble to justify ourselves. People will then doubt the goodness of God, doubt the existence of God, deny his rule over creation, call him a moral monster, using Christian categories to try, try and make an argument against the God who invented those categories. And you see the circular reasoning going on and on. This is what happens when confronted with the pure reality of these issues. And the response of the church many times has been to try and soften this message then, to come up with things that take away from the force of this. But when you do that, you must then ask the question, why was it the first thing Jesus warned everyone of? Why was it the first message that he had the church preach? Why has it been central to the preaching of the gospel for the last 2,000 years? We do not want to be the ones responsible for that. And I think it's good. Sometimes what we preach should bother us. If we actually if we believe what we're teaching here, and the reality is, as God has ordered the universe, it should bother us. It should get under people's skin. It should evoke a response from us. We are dealing with very serious things. And in fact, if it doesn't bother you, then you're probably not hearing it. And if it, you don't think it's that, that bad, then you probably misunderstood the message. The preaching of the church should confront these issues because it should confront the people who are heading to that fate. That's the whole point. God does not want them to go for that fate, and the church is what he has instituted on earth to confront people with the direction they're heading and show them a different direction. That's it. The two ways, the way of life and the way of death that I'm always talking about. Jewish thought from the first century on and back even. We warn of coming judgment, and we also explain the way of escape. We explain that there's no need to worry. The second death has no power over those who are God. God himself has dealt with it. This is the whole story, what we celebrate at Christmas that we'll be celebrating soon. This is why he came down to earth, to die that death for us, to take that wrath upon himself so that we would never have to. And on and on. And that's why we sing praises to the Lord. That's why in Revelation we see them bowing before him, throwing their crowns in front of him and saying, holy, holy is the Lord. On Saturday, the 7th of July, 1741, a small women's prayer group was praying through the night in Connecticut, New England. They were praying for revival in their country. That was July the 7th. On Sunday, July the 8th, a New England pastor called Jonathan Edwards got up to preach a sermon on Deuteronomy 33, verse 35, which says, Vengeance is mine, and retribution. In due time their foot will slip, for the day of their calamity is near, and the impending things are hastening upon them. Jonathan Edwards spoke softly and simply, not, as is often caricatured, yelling at people. He was very softly spoken in his message, but he warned the unconverted, and in his analogy, that they were dangling over hell like a spider over the fire. And remember, this is 18th century language, but he said, O oh, sinner, consider the fearful danger. The unconverted are now walking over the pit of hell on a rotten covering, and there are innumerable places in that covering that is so weak that it will not bear the weight, 
and these places are not seen. His sermon was lost as people started crying in the audience, shouting out, tell us how to be saved. He paused, he appealed for calm, and he concluded, let everyone that is out of Christ now awake and fly from the wrath of God, because surely the wrath of the Almighty is hanging over a great part of this congregation. When the cries of men and women spread throughout the village that night, people flocked to Christ for salvation, over 500 in that village alone. And this sermon, which is probably now the most read sermon in the world, sparked a revival in America known as the Great Awakening that swept thousands upon thousands into the kingdom of God. Now, just to caveat that, that's not how Jonathan Edwards preached all the time. Of the thousands of written sermons we have, only 12 indicate that sort of a judgment. So you must have the balance that we do there, but it's very necessary at a time. And this is kind of the same idea that we, we see here. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, they will be thrown into the lake of fire, the second death. It's the same idea. The question that we should really ask ourselves is, is our name in the book of life? Do you have the Son? And if you do, do you desire to be in his presence? That's another question, an application there. Have we confessed our sin? Have we come in humility, asked him for forgiveness, believed on his death, his cross, his resurrection? Do, have we ensured that our life is hidden with God? Because that's the only way, that's the only place we get the garments of salvation, and that is how the second death has no power. And that really should fire us up to have this message in a world that does seem to be, in many ways, spinning out of control. Confusion seems to be reigning. Division seems to be higher than it's ever been. People's love is growing cold. The church should have the same message that it had 2,000 years ago. And that's it. Repent. Amen. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.